0: This is the Guardian. Wünschst du dir, dass dein Lieblingsnachrichtenpodcast nicht mehr durch Werbung unterbrochen wird? Gute Neuigkeiten! Werbefreies Hören bei Amazon Music ist in deiner Prime-Mitgliedschaft enthalten. Gehe einfach zu amazon.de/slash Nachrichtenpodcasts, um immer auf dem neuesten Stand zu bleiben. Genieße als Prime-Mitglied tausende AKs-Podcasts ohne Werbung. Einige Podcasts enthalten möglicherweise Werbung.
1: About this time last year, I started to notice something happening on what was then known as Twitter. You want an excuse for not attending a meeting written in the voice of Werner Herzog? Done. A verse in the style of the King James Bible about how to remove a peanut butter sandwich from a VCR? Easy. Or a fun podcast intro about intelligent machines? Sorted. People were having a lot of fun with a new program called ChatGPT. A chatbot fed billions and billions of words so that it could come up with responses to almost anything you asked it instantaneously. But as the rest of us were getting AI to write strange recipes, silly songs or funny limericks some experts began to warn that we were entering the realm of dangerously strong AI. Fast forward a year, and while we haven't been made obsolete yet, the conversation around artificial intelligence is only getting more important, as we consider how it's going to be used and how it should be regulated. So today we're asking how far AI has come. Could it ever be sentient? And what would that mean? And we'll be getting answers from someone who's been thinking about these questions for more than 30 years. From The Guardian, I'm Madeline Finley, and this is Science Weekly. Nicola Davis, you're a science correspondent at The Guardian and earlier this year you caught up with Michael Waldridge, Professor of Computer Science at the University of Oxford, who's giving this year's Royal Institution Christmas Lectures and he's going to be unravelling the myths and the mysteries of AI. I mean, this year really feels like the year that AI went mainstream and it was all kicked off by the launch of ChatGPT in November 2022. Why was that such a game changer?
2: Yeah, you're right. I mean, the thing is that AI has been in our lives for a long time. It's been bubbling away behind the scenes. It's involved in all sorts of different parts of our daily life, but it might not be sort of overt. You don't necessarily know you're interacting with AI. Whereas ChatGPT... Kind of just put front and center like this is what AI can do now. You can ask it questions and it can produce, you know, seemingly pretty intelligent answers and you can interact with it in a way which perhaps people hadn't realized we got to that point yet. So it really, I think just brought out from the shadows where AI is. That has maybe propelled into people's consciousness all sorts of questions that maybe seemed a bit esoteric or that were very hypothetical before, it's now sort of made those questions feel very pertinent, very relevant, very now. Things like, you know, can a machine be conscious? What do we mean by an intelligent machine? This is something that I think it's fair to say kind of does divide the AI community. And in fact, in March, 2023, Elon Musk and others signed an open letter urging a halt to the next generation of AI tech and asked if we should develop non-human minds that might eventually outsmart us. So with all this going on, I was really pleased I got to speak to Michael Waldrich, who really does know so much on the topic. He's been an AI researcher for more than 30 years. He's the foundational director of AI research at the Alan Turing Institute. He's written a couple of popular books on the story of AI. And so one of the first things I wanted to understand was how far away we are actually from some kind of you know all-purpose AI that could actually make humans obsolete. Mm
0: people are very often surprised when they understand actually the basic ideas that drive ChatGPT GPT are just surprisingly simple, and you can much better understand the kind of answers that it's giving you when you, when you actually get to see what's going on behind the scenes. The way that ChatGPT GPT and all these what are called large language models are trained is just by feeding them, um, giving their neural networks enormous amounts of text. And that text is obtained typically from the Internet. I mean, you start by downloading the whole of the World Wide Web to obtain that text. And you spend months with very expensive AI supercomputers training the neural network with that text so that it can produce plausible and realistic text. If we really succeeded in kind of the Hollywood version of AI, having a truly general purpose AI, then it would be able to, for example, tidy my house and cook me a meal. It would be able to drive me to the pub and back safely. It would be able to do anything that a human being could do. We are, I think, still a long way from that. And people imagine that because we've seen a lot of progress in tools like ChatGPT, that robotic AI must be close behind. And actually, the reality is it isn't. It's a long, long, long way behind. But nevertheless, I think we're now looking at some version of a competent general purpose AI system within a reasonably short space of time.
1: Nicola, it's so interesting that it's the robotics that's lagging behind while the AI is speeding ahead. And it really is becoming very convincing. You know, people are forming relationships as as they see them with some of these tools. And even a Google engineer last year hit the news when he said that he thought Google's AI system had become sentient, which is quite a claim. I mean, this must be something that Michael has thought about a lot. Absolutely. And I I think it's a really interesting
2: area of research. I mean, not just in terms of technology, but also, you know, philosophy. You know, what does it mean to be sentient? What are the criteria that we need to meet? And I think there's, you know, there is a difference between intelligence and consciousness. You know, knowing lots of things or seeming to know lots of things is sort of different from having the ability to, you know, shape your environment or be original or or, all that sort of thing. And I think also there's this sort of question I talked to Michael about. To what extent does it involve interacting with your environment or having feedback from your environment? So that's something we really delved into.
0: The problem of consciousness remains one of the great scientific mysteries and we don't understand really at all how human consciousness really works. There is, I think, some agreement that... um, the concept of experience is a really important part. So I've got a cup of coffee in front of me and I experience the aroma of that. And I can describe to you what the taste of my coffee is like. But even though we might use the same words to describe the coffee, we might describe it as bitter and and whatever, Uh, I can't be sure that you are experiencing coffee in the same way that I am because our experiences are inherently private. And the only way that we can relate our experiences is through communication. Of course, I don't really have any evidence that you're experiencing anything, but I'll give you the benefit of the (laughs) doubt. So um, these systems, these large language models, chat, GPT and co have never experienced anything. So they will have read thousands upon thousands of descriptions of drinking coffee and the taste of coffee and different brands of coffee, but they've never experienced coffee. And they've never experienced anything at all. That's fundamentally not how the technology works. All they've done is ingested some text. So for those reasons, just to start with those reasons, there are other reasons. I don't think that we can view these things as as being conscious They're very plausible. They can describe experiences to us, but they never actually experienced anything. But there's another reason I would argue that these tools are inherently not conscious. You have a conversation with ChatGPT, and then you go on holiday for two weeks and leave the conversation in mid-flow. It's not wondering where you are. It's not worried about you. It's not thinking, where's Michael gone? Why is (laughs) there?" questions. It's not thinking anything at all. It is a computer program which is just paused in the middle of a loop. It's just literally not doing anything at all. And when you come back and you rejoin the conversation, it's not aware of the passage of time. And for all those reasons, I think that we couldn't credibly think of them as, as being conscious.
2: It's interesting that we've talked about consciousness. With respect to what we experience as humans, which of course is very natural. I mean, that's, you know, we're creating the AI, we want to use ourselves as a benchmark in some ways. I suppose one question is could a computer, could AI be more conscious than some other living organisms?
0: Firstly, I don't think there is any scientific reason to suppose that machines can't be conscious. I mean, you know, human beings, magnificent, wonderful, amazing things that we are, we are just a bunch of atoms that are bumping into one another. I, so for that reason alone, I don't think there is any concrete scientific argument that would suggest that machines can't be conscious. But machine consciousness, I think, is going to be inherently different to human conscious. Um, So there is a famous article from the 1970s by an American philosopher called Thomas Nagel. And the article is called What Is It Like to Be a Bat? And the point of Nagel's paper is the following. Nagel said something is conscious if it is like something to be that thing. So we can, I can imagine what it's like to be you. I can imagine what it's like to be a Guardian journalist. I can imagine uh, what it's like to be my teenage child getting A-level results. The point of Nagel's argument, the reason that he said, what is was it like to be a bat is that bats have certain sensors which human beings don't have. They have a kind of ultrasound scanning sensor. And So even though we could imagine that a bat has experiences, we can't actually put ourselves in the place of a bat and know what those experiences would be like. And I think exactly the same argument would apply to machine consciousness. In just the same way that a bat has a different kind of conscious experience, I think machine consciousness would be different. One of the fascinating things around the last couple of years is that 10 years ago the discussion that we're having now would be a purely philosophical discussion because there was no AI that could remotely meaningfully claim to have any kind of credible consciousness And now we've got people, very serious people, that are claiming, yeah, actually we are we are close to having conscious machines. And so we're heading into a new era of AI where these are no longer philosophical discussions. They're actually concrete scientific questions which we can go to the lab and start to experiment with. And we're at the beginning of that journey, but it's going to be the next few years are going to be really, really fascinating as we start to explore what these new AI technologies can do.
2: Is there also an element of the importance of self-interest? So as humans, we have both motivations in terms of our place in society and our community. We also have self-interest in terms of what's good for us as individuals. Computers don't, as far as I'm aware, have that. Is that also an important element of that sort of idea of whether they can be electronic brains?
0: So in AI terms, the programs that we build that have some self-interest that have some preferences, we call them agents. And a classic idea in AI is that what you do is you build an AI system, an agent to operate on your behalf. and You give it your preferences and off it goes to try to accomplish your preferences. An interesting question is whether in all of that training data, whether... As a side effect of that, they have somehow acquired preferences that aren't necessarily visible to us. And if indeed that was the case, then that would be something that perhaps we should be concerned about because we would want to know what those preferences were and we would want to know that those preferences were aligned with ours. So one of the big ideas in AI at the moment is, is the alignment problem. And that's the problem of ensuring that anything that we build has preferences or goals that are aligned with ours and that the machine understands the kind of the norms of human conventions. So there's a lot of research to try to understand that question at the moment.
1: Nicola, I think just delving into this even briefly is so fascinating, because it immediately takes you to these questions about what it means to be a thinking, experiencing human being and and that being a special experience, different to anything else. But from what Michael has said, we're not quite there yet, at least when it comes to sentient machines. And actually, there are plenty of things that we need to be thinking about now, that we need to be worrying about. So what are experts like Michael concerned about when it comes to AI today? A big
2: one is, is it biased and What could that mean? So the EU, they've just banned certain applications of AI. So for example, looking at the faces of employees at work to score their emotions, you know, that's, that's pretty dystopian.
1: (laughs) Not great if you've got a resting sort of scowl face either. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. So yeah, but I mean, yeah, well, Jake,
2: but it is, you know, really important that these things are not used to kind of control people in a sort of nefarious way. So, you know, there are things there which I think there are sort of lines in the sand which need to be thought about, you know, What do we want to use this technology for? Where shouldn't we use this technology? And obviously, Michael had some really interesting things to say about this.
0: I think we've got to separate out two sets of concerns. The first set of concerns are very real, very short term concerns around the possibility of unemployment, around bias in computer programs and so on. I think there is a much more speculative set of concerns which are around the risks that they pose but i think we need to separate those two things out and one of the very short-term concerns i've got is the possibility of this technology being used for misinformation disinformation AI can go onto social media, it can read your social media feed, pick up on your political leanings, and then feed you disinformation stories in order to try to get you, for example, to change your vote. Now imagine in a a constituency, a narrow constituency, where it's not clear which way it's going to go in an election – it's an entirely plausible scenario that people can be targeted and they are fed disinformation that's very high quality and the technology makes it possible to roll that out on an industrial scale. Another example of a near-term concern that I've got, and a very concrete one, which I think is, is really imminent, is the idea of having AI as a boss. So an awful lot of our working lives for many people involve answering emails, filling in web forms and processing information. So imagine that every single thing that you did in your working life was monitored by AI and you got continual feedback on it. Every time you sent an email, the AI came back and said, yeah, I didn't really like the tone of that email. You didn't upsell these products. It's 15 minutes since you last touched your computer keyboard. What are you doing? Uh, and potentially getting to the point where AI is used in automatically assessing people in their roles or deciding you know, whether they get a pay rise or potentially even lose their jobs. That's a very disturbing possibility. And there absolutely needs to be accountability. The people that are releasing these tools need to be accountable for how they're used. And there is such a race on uh, that big tech companies are just so desperate to be at the front of the race in terms of releasing this technology that these concerns are being sidelined. And by the way, I would strongly resist suggestions that... AI is treated as a moral agent in the sense that it's accountable for its actions. AI is not a moral agent. The people that release AI are responsible for what happens with it. But having said that, There are lots of things that I lose sleep about. I do lose sleep about the Ukraine war. I lose sleep about climate change. I lose sleep about the rise of populist politics. I don't lose sleep about artificial intelligence. In the age of AI, and this is going to be one of the big lessons in the Christmas lectures, the most important skill to have is skepticism. Questioning, learning to question. It's not some kind of mystical technology. When people see how this technology actually works, they're going to be surprised at what's actually going on. On there, but then that's going to equip them much better to go into a world where this is another tool that they use, and so they won't regard it any differently than you know a pocket calculator or a computer, it's just a tool like those. So, Nicola, we are
1: obviously you'll need to be a bit more sceptical and treat AI with a little less magic and perhaps a bit more pragmatism. I'm really interested to hear what you came away with from your conversation with Michael. So I think one of the things I found really fascinating was,
2: yeah, this this isn't magic. If you look at how something like ChatGPT works, when you first interact with it, it does, it seems like, wow, there's a little creature in my machine typing back to me, that's amazing. But actually... I find it quite reassuring to understand better how it works. These kinds of programmes can be a little uncanny valley. They can take you to a place where you do question, what is it to be human? And I think the answers we come up with will tell us a lot about ourselves as well as about the technology.
1: Well, I think that's a lovely philosophical thought to leave us on. So Nicola, thank you so much. (laughs) No problem. Thanks Maddie, for having me. My thanks to both Nicola Davis and to Professor Michael Waldridge. You can read Nicola's article about the Royal Institution Christmas Lectures on theguardian.com and they'll be broadcast on BBC4 on the 26th, 27th and 28th of December at 8pm. Now, before you go, I really want to tell you about The Guardian and Observer's annual charity appeal – This year we're partnering with Refugee Council, Refugees at Home and NACOM and so your support is going to be providing asylum seekers and refugees with practical help, really vital accommodation and a safety net against homelessness and destitution. So if you can, please donate now at theguardian.com forward slash donate. That's theguardian.com forward slash donate. Thank you so much And that's it from us today. This episode was produced by me, Madeleine Finley. It was sound designed by Joel Cox, and the executive producer is Ellie Bury. We'll be back on Thursday. See you then
0: This is The Guardian. Wünschst du dir, dass dein Lieblingsnachrichtenpodcast nicht mehr durch Werbung unterbrochen wird? Gute Neuigkeiten! Werbefreies Hören bei Amazon Music ist in deiner Prime-Mitgliedschaft enthalten. Gehe einfach zu amazon.de/nachrichtenpodcasts, um immer auf dem neuesten Stand zu bleiben. Genieße als Prime-Mitglied tausende Podcasts ohne Werbung. Einige Podcasts enthalten möglicherweise Werbung.